From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. For the last few years, we've been tracking the push to improve transparency in healthcare, particularly transparency around prices. And this has been a big area of focus for CMS and the current administration. And this push for price transparency is seen as a way to help patients, particularly those who've been slammed with large and often surprising hospital bills. But here's the thing. Hospital leaders themselves are often against this kind of transparency. In fact, a coalition of hospital groups took CMS to court arguing that the rule CMS finalized last year that actually required hospitals to publish the prices they negotiate with insurers was unlawful. And just a few weeks ago, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia rejected that lawsuit. Today, I want to talk about what that ruling means for the state of price transparency and for the healthcare leaders opposed to it. To do that, I've brought my colleague, Robin Brand. Hey, Robin. Hey, Ray. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Where are you dialing into the podcast from? I am in Chicago. Is it swelteringly hot in Chicago like it is in the D.C. suburbs? It is. (laughs) Yeah, the summer is definitely set in here. Here as well. There is no time of day where there is actually relief from the heat. So spending a lot more time indoors. Which is convenient. (laughs) Yes. It is convenient in a time of quarantine. Robin, tell us a little bit more about what you do for Advisory Board. Sure. So I've been with Advisory Board for about 11 years, always in research. My latest gig essentially was doing a lot of revenue cycle research on our revenue cycle advancement center team. So I've been researching a lot on the patient financial experience, denials, you know, anything and everything that has to do with reimbursement, essentially. And that's why you are the right person to have this conversation with. (laughs) So let's start by talking about the big news, which is, of course, the ruling itself. Get us up to speed a little bit. What was CMS actually hoping to accomplish here? Sure. Well, with, you know, they've kind of been teasing this for a while now, right? So two years ago, there was the requirement that hospitals had to publish charge masters. So that's essentially, you know, the price that they're, they would hope to be paid, but it has nothing to do with actual price that consumers or insurance companies are paying. So the latest round of this started last year with both the proposed and final outpatient rules that essentially asked hospitals to not only post their charge master, but also post negotiated prices with insurers, as well as the lowest amount that's negotiated with a particular insurer and the highest amount. So they would get a range as well as the lowest amount that they would actually charge a cash pay patient. So meaning somebody that came without insurance, what they would actually charge them. And those two terms, I think, are really important. Tell us the difference between just listing your charge master versus actually publishing negotiated rates. I think of the charge master as the starting point in negotiation. Hospitals know they're not going to get that amount, but that's where they want to start negotiations with insurers, essentially. So they negotiate based upon that a rate with every insurance company that they actually contract with. 
So there could be, you know, wide variety in terms of what United Healthcare pays them versus what Blue Cross Blue Shield pays and that type of thing. And typically the negotiated rate is much, much lower than what you would find on a charge master. And hopefully closer to what a patient would actually pay. You would hope that to be the case. A lot of the time, though, self-insured patients or uninsured patients ended up paying a charge master price because that was what would be billed hmm. since nothing was going to be billed to an insurance company. So that's been a lot of the heat and frustration and the talk around the, the price transparency issue as well. And I think that's right. Even though in theory, transparency is thought of as a good thing for patient advocates, what we're talking about is just how complex and frankly, how difficult it actually is to offer an accurate price estimates to patients. Is that really the crux of why hospital leaders were so opposed to this type of transparency? Or was it more than that? Oh, it's much more than that. So to, to be more of a cynical researcher, I mean, publishing these prices and, you know, allowing them to be scrutinized essentially means that insurance companies have leverage. They know exactly what United Healthcare is paying if you're Blue Cross Blue Shield. There's going to be pressure for prices to come down. I mean, anytime that there's full price transparency in any type of market, we, we typically see prices go down. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that. And that's what the AHA and others were trying to argue in the court case. The judge didn't have it, though. It was, it's pretty interesting to read some of his language. He kind of pushes back on them saying, yes, there may be some instances of Dutch mining companies decades ago, you know, releasing price information and seeing prices go up, but it's a pretty rare happening. Why is prices going down such a bad thing for hospitals? Yeah, I mean, healthcare economics or health system economics relies upon the cross-subsidy, right? Most people in healthcare understand this. I don't know how many people actually in the general public understand this, but Medicaid and Medicare, neither of which actually reimburse for full cost. So hospitals lose money on every single one of those cases. They rely upon a cross-subsidy from private insurers. They need private insurers to be paying over what the cost of delivering care is to cross-subsidize the losses on Medicare and Medicaid cases. So seeing any kind of downward pressure on those negotiated rates is really scary to health systems, considering the fact that they're operating on pretty slim margins already. Add in a global pandemic and canceled elective procedures, this is a pretty scary economic proposition for them. That's right. And of course, now we know what the outcome of that court ruling was. The court rejected the lawsuit brought forth by hospitals. I know you've been tracking this pretty closely. Were you surprised at all by that ruling? I mean, it's 2020, so nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I'm not sure, honestly. I mean, I'm really torn by it because, you know, I've spent my career really on the quote unquote side of health systems. And so I really do feel for them and what they're dealing with now at the same time. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a free market advocate. You know, I believe in giving consumers price information. I do think it's ridiculous that there are patients out there that are expected to lay out the cost of a car or a large household appliance and they can't get information about what it's actually going to cost. So I'm pretty torn on it. But I, I, I guess I was surprised, given the fact that this has been this sacred secret mm -hmm. that's been held by the industry for so long. What do you see happening next? 
Well, it's interesting. So it seems as though the AHA is kind of taking a two-prong approach. One, this is going to be appealed. They'll definitely move forward with that. Two, they've also asked the administration for a delay. So not going into place in January of 2021, but pushing that out further, which I think is fair given everything that's happening and given everything that health systems are facing right now. So what you're saying is that because hospital leaders have so much to lose, the fight isn't necessarily going to stop. I would think not, yeah. And I kind of agree with feeling torn in this situation, right? On the one hand, I totally understand the pushback from hospital leaders, but I have to believe, and I'll be the optimist of the two of us, that every challenge also creates an opportunity, at least for some folks. So I'm curious, Is there an upside for hospital leaders here? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think so. I mean, one, there's the idea of, quote unquote, doing the right thing, which is providing price information to consumers. But, you know, our research has also shown that when consumers actually know what they're going to owe, they're able to actually budget for it. They're able to actually plan for it. And patient collections actually do tend to go up in those cases. Hmm. So what's the opportunity for health systems to actually react and respond in a positive way to this mandate? and really get right the patient financial experience that we've been pushing in our research the past 18 months to two years or so. And I'm guessing that right now is potentially even more of an opportunity to get this right. You mentioned the effects of the pandemic on elective procedures. We've had a couple conversations on the podcast about what the pandemic has done to volumes, which are not coming back to pre-pandemic levels this year, certainly. And I'm, I'm just wondering if there are any organizations that are taking maybe price transparency as an offensive approach to say, how can I make sure that patients are coming in for that elective procedure, maybe giving more of their obligation, like you're actually saying, and taking more of an offensive approach right now? I don't know about right now. I mean, I would assume that there probably are, but we know that there are a lot of organizations that have been pretty offensive, pretty offensive, (laughs) (laughs) that have taken that offensive position prior to the pandemic that have been pretty aggressive in terms of doing what's right for the patient and not only price transparency, but making sure that the patient is actually getting an accurate estimate prior to care, according to not only their insurance plan and benefit structure, but also what care have they already received this year? What do they owe on their obligation? As well as pairing them with a financial counselor or their financial sort of assistance infrastructure, whether that be some type of payment plan, whether that be discounts, that type of thing. So, you know, there are health systems out there that have pushed this and have done fairly well. So I would say that if nothing's been done on the price transparency front, you're well behind as a health system. And I think those are the folks that are really situated to to be hurt pretty badly if this does go forward as mandated January 2021. And you've been talking about all of these other elements that relate to transparency and ultimately impact a patient's ability to pay for a service, which is, I think, what you're calling the patient financial experience. Tell me a little bit more about that and what we might see as best practice there. Sure. So we actually developed a patient journey, essentially, with six what we called financial flashpoints. So these are points where a patient is going to have a question or a concern, something having to do with the cost of care. So it starts with, who should I choose? What's this going to cost me? How have my obligations changed if we're talking about 
a long-term type of care or chronic condition, cancer, that type of thing. What do these bills even mean? Because we know that bills tend to be (laughs) not the easiest thing to actually understand. And then how am I going to pay? So thinking about, am I going to charge this? Is there a way that I can make installment payments? That type of thing. So we created this journey and then really set upon trying to help hospitals actually answer those questions in the moment. Because the idea is if you can actually proactively anticipate when a patient is going to have a concern or a question and make sure that your revenue cycle or your financial system within the health system is set up to answer those questions, not only is your patient going to be happier, you're going to be happier because you're going to collect more from them. I actually love this because I think a lot of folks tend to think about the patient experience in a pretty narrow way. First of all, they're only talking about the experience that happens when a patient is physically in the room with them. And you see things like, do I have the right posters? Do I have a nice looking facility? Is my staff and my physician speaking to me with respect? But what I always tell people, and I'm curious if you do the same, is you can kind of get everything right in the moment and completely screw up the patient experience when somebody gets a bill that they are surprised by, that they can't understand, and that they can't actually pay easily. Absolutely. And there's research on this as well. I mean, there was an interesting study I read 18 months ago or so that basically showed that for labor and delivery, after a woman had a baby, if the bill was terrible, there was a huge likelihood of her actually switching providers for the next baby Hmm. and for more care. So that really is kind of your final (laughs) opportunity to, to wow the patient. And it's not even about wowing. I mean, I'm pretty blunt with a lot of patient experience leaders and say, you know what, it doesn't matter if you're giving women slippers and mimosas while they're getting their mammogram. If it's incredibly expensive, you're not answering any questions and you're sending them these ridiculously archaic and convoluted bills. Like get the simple things right and just make it easy. Make it as easy as possible for the patient. That's what it comes down to. That's so right. I often tell people it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and too many people are thinking mimosas or spa water and not thinking about just how do I make it easy for somebody to interact with us and and frankly pay us. Absolutely. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Thanks for listening to Radio Advisory. It's a tough time to be a leader in healthcare right now. There was plenty of change and disruption to grapple with even before COVID-19 came along. At the end of every episode, Ray says, we're here to help, and we are. Let us know how we can help you by taking our two-minute survey at advisory.com slash pod survey. Tell us what you want to hear about, what you're struggling with, or what you think about the podcast. Talk to us at advisory.com slash pod survey. Robin, we talked a little bit about the impact of the pandemic on financial experience and whether or not folks are going to be a little bit more on the offensive. The other part of the pandemic that we haven't talked about yet is just the fact that so many Americans are currently unemployed and therefore uninsured. What's the impact you see there on transparency and financial experience more broadly? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's terrifying. And I think that most hospitals and, and finance leaders are preparing for an increase in bad debt. I mean, that, that's just going to happen. That's what happens when we see large swaths of people uninsured. Having said that, I mean, the nice 
thing, I guess, about patient financial experience and price transparency is that it goes back to this idea of preparing patients Hmm. for what's going to happen. If people don't have insurance and they are on the hook for the total cost of their care, it's even more critical to be able to actually get them some type of number prior to receiving care as soon as possible after receiving care. And then pairing that with, again, this idea of a financial counselor or some type of financial support allowing them to have a payment plan. I mean, one of the things I've said is that if you don't have a payment plan, I, I mean, you're you're back in the stone ages. This is not a nice to have. This is not a feature that is absolutely a necessary part of operating as a health system today. Mm-hmm. You cannot expect patients to be able to pay these huge obligations, you know, two weeks post-discharge. We've talked about the fact that providing an accurate price at all is really difficult. And you just said that the more personalized that price quote can be, the better. What practical advice do you have for leaders to actually get to offering that personalized price quote to patients? Yeah, it's a great question and it's really tricky. And high deductible health plans, HDHPs, and how they've taken off in recent years has really made this even more complicated. And I think a lot of providers have just kind of thrown their hands up and said, well, it's too hard. You know, we can't do this. It's much easier for IDNs, integrated delivery networks, where there's a a health system, physician practices, kind of all the different pieces and assets of a a health system are fairly contained because that health system is going to really have a lot of visibility into every type of care, every procedure that a patient has had across the year. So they'll know what they owe on the deductible. They'll know what's already been paid, that type of thing. So in those types of organizations, we've seen a lot of success here already. The tricky part is, you know, when a health system is one of many in a particular city, Chicago, where I am, is a great example. There's so many different health system providers here, and people may go to Northwestern for some type of care or rush for another. They may live close to North Shore, so, you know, there was a a broken arm ED visit that resulted in a bill. So how do these organizations do this? And and there's a lot of different ways that we've seen people at least start down this road. I mean, one could be working with the health insurer. If the health insurer actually has some type of -of out-of-pocket estimator that takes into account deductible and what's already been, you know, performed on that patient, what they've already paid, that's one way to do it. We've also seen third-party companies spring up in certain markets that actually buy the debt from all the health providers in the area. They consolidate the bills and send the patient one bill that makes it a lot easier and they're able to go from there. And to your point, even though that is really, really hard, the good news is there's a whole host of other things health systems can do to improve the financial experience, even if it's not providing that really, truly personalized price quote, like just making it easier to pay your bills online or offering things like a payment plan. Yep, absolutely. We've been going back and forth on this idea that there are going to be some organizations that are a little bit more proactive in their price transparency efforts and others who might be waiting or even burying their head in the sand. How should an organization decide whether they should take more of that offensive or defensive approach? I'll I'll use the example of Chicago again. I mean, there's so many markets where there are so many different health systems and health systems of different, you know, color, shape, sizes. For 
the ones that tend to be high cost, everyone knows who they are, right? I mean, they tend to be the AMCs, the academic medical centers. They tend to have better rates because they argue that as an AMC, they provide higher quality. Their physicians are, you know, on the latest cutting edge in terms of research. So that justifies that higher price. Where in other markets, you know, hospitals and health systems that don't have the ability to claim those higher prices, they don't have as great amount of market share. They haven't been able to necessarily negotiate as nice of rates, I guess. So if you're in that position, I think there's got to be some first mover advantage mm-hmm. as going forth and saying, hey, I'm, I'm probably the low cost provider in this market. Like, does it make sense to get ahead of this? Robin, do you have any examples of folks that have really gone to this offensive approach? Sure. I won't name names necessarily, but I know that there are a lot of health systems in certain markets that know that their competitor charges quite a bit more than they do. So they've taken out billboards. I know for a while imaging was kind of the the first area clinically that was kind of shoppable and um, people decided to really exploit the variation in MRI and CT prices. So they'd take out ads on the sides of buses, essentially, you know, showing that their competitor was charging 1500 for something they were only charging 800 for or, you know, lower than that. Hmm. So there's definitely a public shaming element to all of this. Although I, I, I don't know that we'd say that that's best practice. It's definitely an option. That's true. That's right. Robin, I want to thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. I know we've covered a lot when talking about price transparency and the financial experience. I want to give you just a couple final moments at the end of our episode here to offer some advice for healthcare executives. What do you want leaders in healthcare to focus on right now? It's such a good question. And this may sound completely cheesy, but I would I would just say give yourself some grace. I mean, we are facing unprecedented times with rapid moving things. Your priorities are changing, not day to day, but hour to hour, minute to minute. No one is going to be their their perfect selves, you know, executing on every single thing. So this time can teach us to all be nicer to one another and to give ourselves a break. I love that. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. It is clear that price transparency isn't going away. Even right now, in times of COVID-19 and all the financial distress on hospitals, greater transparency among providers is still being demanded. And you as a leader will need to make a decision. Is your organization going to be more proactive? Or maybe wait and see? As Robin shared, it's not just about focusing on transparency, but the entire patient financial journey. And remember, as always, we're here to help. must remember this which is about old hollywood and all the stories yeah have you have you listened to the manson season not yet because i'm scared to like i (laughs) what i I live alone it's scary (laughs) 